You're listening to the CryptoCast Podcast. Welcome to the Crypto and Blockchain Talk. Hello. Hey. Hello. Hello. Namaste. Hello. Salve. Ciao. Bonjour. Our podcast talks about the latest trends in the worlds of cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Crypto and Blockchain Talk. Well, it's another interesting week in the lives of anyone who's involved in crypto and blockchain. Today, joining me again is turning out to be one of my favorite uh, people who helps me dissect what's going on out there in the whole entire space and world of crypto and blockchain. And that is Jonathan Dunsmore. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, how are you? Hey, really good. Now, Jonathan Dunsmore, I will tell you who he is. He is the founder and principal of Dunsmore Law, which basically focuses on the worlds, again, of crypto and blockchain. There's no better person for me to dissect the following topic with, which, by the way, is around Kick. Now, in case anyone isn't aware, social media platform Kick is promising to challenge the proposed SEC enforcement that is going against its ICO. So, Let's just have a brief reflection on the history of things. So in the first instance, the tokenized social media startup kick has warned the SEC, which is the United States regulators, that they would fight back against proposed enforcement actions against their company. Uh, And it was first, I think, reported in the Wall Street Journal on, I'm pretty sure, January 27th. Kick is based in Canada, which, Jonathan, in a minute, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. Uh, and they're facing a prospective enforcement action over an alleged securities infraction after the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, judged their 2017 ICO, or initial coin offering, to have involved the sale of unregistered securities. Now, the startup is reported to have raised around $100 million U.S. dollars in kin tokens for their chat-based social media network, which can be earned on the platform or traded or redeemed for goods and services. And in a blog post that was published yesterday by Kick's CEO and founder, Ted Livingston, he stated that the startup was poised to fight against the action, and he argued that the crypto space as a whole must challenge the application of securities laws to emerging assets such as decentralized platform tokens. Now, the enforcement action against Kick, which was first recommended on November 16th, is yet to be authorized by the agency's commissioners. Now, in the United States, if the SEC deems that a securities infraction has occurred, it issues an enforcement notice uh, action or, or a recommendation, as well as a letter to the company under scrutiny, which is known as a Wells Notice. And the proposed action has to subsequently be authorized in a vote by the agency's commissioners. And the company in question is giving... I think they're given 30 days to issue their response or their rebuttal to this Wells notice or Wells letter, whichever it is, which we're going to get clarification anyway from Jonathan, who's here today. So Kick's letter, which was submitted to the agency on December 7th, argued that the SEC's regulation by enforcement approach has had a dramatic and negative impact on the development of blockchain and cryptocurrency technologies in the United States as innovators have either directed their activities overseas or shelved their projects altogether, which um, is interesting that they wrote that because really I don't understand why they would try to fight that battle. It doesn't seem like it has anything to do with their own action, but we won't go over that yet. And the letter also notes that the U.S. regulators would be doubling down on a deeply flawed regulatory and enforcement approach, which they have been doing if you've been paying any attention. Um, if the recommended enforcement action was authorized. Now, Kick says emphatically that they are not asking the SEC to change the law to accommodate disruptive technologies. And on the contrary, they're arguing that the SEC has erred in stretching the definition of an investment contract under securities laws beyond its original meaning and intent. So before we go... In, into this any further i, I want to I, I i have so many questions and i have so many <laughs> statements <laughs> this is gonna be so fun okay so in the first instance 
you know, Kick is a Canadian company. Now, am I wrong in thinking, I just need for you to explain what is happening that the SEC is now reaching across its borders and um, and what's going on here? Go ahead, Jonathan, just open up. Okay, so first and foremost, this is all educational uh, information. None of this is legal advice, investment advice, or financial advice. Um, everything that we are talking about is hypothetical in nature and it should not be used as um definitive fact, meaning that you should not rely on it in any legal capacity. Um, So that being said, the reason the SEC and our uh, federal government uh, in general has such a what we call a long arm reach um, is because they can work with uh, Canadian regulators as well as um, they have the ability to basically shut down any type of U.S. operations pretty quickly. Um, A Wells notice um, or We have a a more derogatory term for it when a client or potential client receives one of those. um, We take those very seriously because that means that somehow or some way, whether it's through the SEC's own knowledge, um, you know, they came across some article, they came across some medium post or or some ICO was back in the day touting on on Telegram how they're going to raise a billion dollars or give everybody Lambos or something, uh, would come across the SEC's desk. And they would try to contact the company. Generally, any regulator tries to contact the company. It's not like you're blindsided and and things of that nature. If you're properly registered as an entity, if you have a mailing address, even if you have an email address, I had a, you know one regulator email a client or uh, who became eventually a client because they couldn't find a, a registered uh, number or or letter or excuse me address to send right. the letter to, and, right. and so. To answer your question, is is the SEC, the FBI, the DOJ, God forbid there's you know any type of criminal activity, has very, very, very impressive long-arm power. And so they will work with other state governments, especially ones that uh, not necessarily bend to the U.S.'s will, but have kind of a, a financial incentive to do so. Uh, Canada, Canada, excuse me, um, <laughs> that's the, the, the buffalo in me talking. Um, Canada... <laughs> Canada uh, and the U.S. have a, a really kind of – or we have to this last administration, which uh, is a whole other issue. But we've had a really strong capital markets relationship in that uh, you can do a dual listing on the Canadian Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange and other exchanges, which allow for kind of more liquidity, more volume, more uh, transacting power. And it gives – or at least back in the day, it gave uh, a company – normally a Canadian company, kind of the branding awareness that it wanted uh, to say it was, you know, listed on an American exchange. All of those mechanisms are still in play. They still have a, a very kind of powerful overarching reach to, to really shut down and disrupt um, operations. And so, for example, you know, if Kick has a bank account <laughs> in the U.S. that the U.S. can get in touch with, have seized, uh, this is why the crypto community likes, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies. Mm. But the the U.S. government can can shut that down. They can seize those assets. They can do it very quickly, incredibly quickly. And so that's one of the the primary things that I would worry about, especially if it was a client. Not to say that uh, kick is or, or or what they're doing is perpetrating a fraud, but if you had an ICO or STO that was clearly uh, lying and, and misrepresenting itself, they could receive uh, a, basically an injunction and, and freeze those assets and, and seize that entire bank account. And those type of things do happen, whether it's in the crypto market or the regular market. Well, this is the thing. I mean, they've raised a lot of money, both from yeah. VCs and the through through their ICO. Their, their ICO from September of 17 raised 100 million US dollars. Mm-hmm. And even um and there's a couple of things because if you look at their white paper and and we've been involved in a lot of ICOs, you know, and their white paper actually says similar to many other white papers of many other ICOs. This is definitely not the most original of ideas. This idea has been duplicated. Oh gosh, I can think of 10 ICO projects off the top of my head that are just like this. But, <laughs> but you know, I'm just going to, from their own white paper, uh, they explain that their token will be, okay, so this is straight from their white paper, that users will be 
able to earn kin by providing value to other members of the Kick digital community through curation, content creation, and commerce. Kick users will be able to spend kin on products, services, and other valuable assets offered by merchants, developers, influencers, and other participants. So they're basically saying, according to them, And I think this was even part, I need to just check, but I think this is actually part of their response to that, the the Wells statement or the Wells notice. They're saying that they fit the definition of a currency in that they are a medium of exchange and therefore exempt from the SEC's definition of a security. And the Securities Exchange Act apparently states that any instrument commonly known as a security shall not include currency. So this is a mess, right? From And don't get me wrong, the lawyers that have worked on this from, from Cooley and, and uh, Kirkland are absolutely brilliant. They, they are not your average kind of lawyer who's just throwing themselves into this. Yeah. Um, these, these guys and girls are very smart. And so the Howey test is an old, outdated mechanism, but it's still applicable. It's, is there an investment of money? Is there an expectation of profits? Is it a common enterprise? And are any profits coming from the efforts of third parties or promoters? And, you know, the last part doesn't matter so much, but the first three generally do. And so if you've taken money and you've put it in a project and you expect a return on that investment, it's probably a security. Mm. Um, and I say probably because Kick's argument, and, and they've done the cool thing where they've put it in a foundation. I believe Ken is a uh, 501c3. I haven't haven't looked into that to see if they're uh, under U.S. law or Canadian. But that was kind of one of the mechanisms to kind of protect uh, the company in case things went sour. Uh, oh, we, you know, they're not going to sue a foundation. Right. Uh, yeah, they will. <laughs> They'll absolutely sue a foundation. Yeah or bring an enforcement action against the foundation. And so here's the rub is that we don't have a really good definition of what a, uh, excuse me, a currency is, let alone a, a security, because currencies aren't generally something that are created by private companies. That is a, a realm of kings and sovereign governments. And so this new idea of oh, it's cool, we just created a currency and and we've distributed it across this network of decentralized nodes or master nodes or all these other kind of interesting, really thought-provoking ideas has not really fit well within the current paradigm of the law. And so you're left with this, you know, I guess that makes sense, but we're not really sure. And so this is why this case is really fascinating because – to clarify some of the, the formulaic steps, they filed a Form D, which is, as we've talked about mm-hmm. in the previous podcast, kind of a good step, right? Like that's saying, okay, I'm complying with U.S. regulations. I'm going to seek money from accredited investors. And I believe they received something like $50 million from yeah. you know, mm-hmm. AIs. And so that's a great start. Congratulations, you're on the road. And then they accepted all this other yep. <laughs> non-accredited money saying yep. that, you know, oh, we're trying to make this a currency for the community and make it this worldwide global ecosystem kind of thing. And and that's really confusing the issue, right? Because you can't say, oh, one second we're comporting with U.S. securities law and then in the next second go, ha no, we're creating a global <laughs> currency. Yeah. Because it just it just doesn't make sense. It's it's saying turn left on red and then go right. You're not supposed to turn left on red. Like that doesn't that doesn't comport. And so when when you take the analysis uh, kind of step by step, it's really complicated. And I think that, unfortunately, these guys are not going to do so well. God forbid it does, you know, actually come to a, a decision. Actually, a decision would probably be very helpful, depending on what jurisdiction it is and, and how it proceeds through the, the federal courts. Because both sides of the country are really, really picky about this stuff. Jurisdictional... Um, venue matters. And, and I don't know how they're going to quantify that and where they're going to go after it. I imagine they're going to try to it in D.C. And I am not sure that is the most advantageous uh, way to proceed, but they are a foreign entity. Um, and so in theory, yeah. they're probably registered in Delaware, as most are. And so the Delaware federal courts and, and things of that nature that would hear this kind of case, they're, they're not equipped for that. And so 
the best case scenario would be go to the Southern District of New York, where all of this stuff is heard, because that's where Wall Street sits, and kind of let them pick through it. And that would be absolutely fascinating to read, because that will really kind of clarify a lot of this stuff. But yeah, so to make a, a long story short, they, they've done a lot of creative maneuvering that has just simply picked and, and choose little bits and pieces of what may be okay. And now they've created this mess that I am not sure can be resolved in their favor. I hope it is. I really hope that it's one of those situations where they uh, issue a rescission order or, you know, kind of do this, are bad, we pay a fine, we clearly aren't perpetrating fraud. Even in their their well submission, (laughs) they say, we don't, we needed money in the beginning because the model wasn't working with advertisers uh, with the, I think, kick points or something. And then they come back and they go like, but then we raised a bunch of money because we said we were doing an ICO and we didn't need any more money. And that is just a horrible argument to ever make to a regulator. I read that and I uh, there's so many things I've read and I'm thinking, you know, this isn't helping not only their case, but even making ICOs look good. Yeah. Or even just in the general realm of fundraising, it's actually some of the things I read I thought were, uh, I don't know, I'm trying not to be dramatic about this, but I think heartbreaking. And I mean heartbreaking not for them, but I mean heartbreaking in, in framing this in the whole, we're trying to, I mean, people like myself and yourself, and we're trying to legitimize and for good reason why it's good to have a fundraising mechanism in place, just like the ICO, well, should have been in theory, you know, the way that it should, it should be helping people raise the amount of money which is needed in order to actually build something out, not just raising horrific amounts of money just to either uh, do nothing with or just kind of throw it around until they can make something that maybe works or worse, even run off with it, which I'm definitely not saying is the case here. What I am saying is that um, it kind of is strange, the arguments that they've put back to the SEC on why they did what they did. I just want to ask you this. Is it a good idea to ever kick the hornet's nest, regardless of what's happening? Is it a good idea to go out there in in the world of, and, and we know the media is a strange place, and you know the, the world of media and the mediums are very strange. They, of course, can help you in some instances, but when you go out there and you say to the world, we're actually not only going to combat this, but I also saw a couple of statements, which I'm not sure are true, but even to kind of say we're going to go after the SEC, is it a good thing to to fight your battle like in the way they're doing or to even say we're going to maybe even go a little bit further and come after you? Or, you know, is this a good way to kind of approach a legal body such as the SEC? Is this a good way to fight this fight? Oh, so many. <laughs> the answer, of course, is it depends. Um and I know you hate that. I <laughs> love you for your. It. I can't stand this. It depends. Oh my god! I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Do you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna buy a box of depends. You know, like uh, adult nappies, and send them to you. And every time you say the word depends, I'm gonna ask you to look at that box. Okay, so go on so then. So it depends. It, it go depends. On. Um, and, and you know, this is kind of one of those cases where it really depends. These guys. Um, I hope they have good treasury management. You know what I mean? Like we, we don't really kind of delve into yeah. that. Um, but assuming that everything looks good financially from their end, and I know that the token has been up and down just like any type of uh, cryptocurrency recently. And this isn't going to help it. You know, I mean, stuff like this does not help. A coin, Absolutely. You know, or a token. It doesn't help. And so yeah. the investor money, and this is where as an investor I would be – a little anxious because it is kicking the hornet's nest and it may be kicking the hornet's nest when you're down. And so if this is a last last ditch kind of hail Mary to possibly uh, get some points on the board before it's all over and hopefully rally, Mm -hmm. then, Oh my gosh, I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) Um, Okay. This is, um, (laughs) you know, something where they're sitting comfortable and they've got all of that hundred mil in fiat and they cashed it out as it came in. 
I know what the guys at, and girls at Cooley and Kirkland charge, and, and man, they're not getting paid in tokens, so I know they have a little bit of money. Nope. And for a fight like this, I mean, you're talking about upwards of a million dollars. And so if that's the last little bit of money you have, like I said, that's a that's a pretty tough Hail Mary, especially under the facts and circumstances of this case. Now, I know that the SEC uh, and most state regulators as well have kind of taken a hands-off approach for companies that have done SEC, or excuse me, that have done, you know, unregistered ICOs or or non-exempt ICOs. They've asked them to come in, explain themselves, kind of formulate uh, a process of cleaning up their act, and then doing so. And as long as you do so, it's generally not an issue. You know what I mean? Because even... Even yeah. Google made a mistake back in, uh, I believe, 2006 and had to in, uh, issue the largest rescission offer ever of, I think it was $1.6 million or billion dollars, excuse me. And nobody you know, took it because it was Google. But it's kind of one of those things where these are complicated laws, which is you know, something that we kind of reiterate every time we have one of these discussions. You should get familiar with everything you can up until the point where you realize you're scared. And then you should contact a professional if you're thinking about going this route, because everyone is going to question you from the state regulators. And, and they may not question you directly, but your friends and family are going to go, why in the hell would you do an STO or an ICO or, or whatever? Why wouldn't you just go the traditional route? And so it's good to have that kind of foundational basis of understanding this ecosystem before you jump head in. Because there is so much misinformation and disinformation. I'm quite frankly a, a willing participant in traveling the world to uh, spread the the true word of of what regulation means and and how it interacts and all of these kind of things. Because there's just so many wrong and imposterous things out there from people who are either armchair quarterbacking it with some law degree that they received from Reddit, or they're simply piecing through old no action letters and and enforcement actions that have come out in the last couple of years and saying, oh, I've got the perfect solution. If I set up a Cayman Island company that's a hedge fund and all use accredited <laughs> investors that invest in real estate tokens in California, then I'm exempt. And you're going, what? <laughs> like, and, and don't get me wrong. Some of them, I have to, to their credit, I've talked to some of these folks and they have really creative ideas. Most of them are highly illegal, <laughs> but they are very creative mm-hmm. and they may not be a lawyer. Somebody may come up with a, a really good solution for a lot of this stuff. I always believe that it's you know helpful to have a third set of eyes or a fourth set of eyes on something. But this type of navigation is very, very scary. There's a reason that, um, you know, you have to have professionals behind it because it's a lot of money, because it's, you know, investor money. And once we have, you know, unaccredited investors able to participate in these larger offerings uh, under Reg A+, like we talked about last podcast, those are going to be some serious companies, uh, you know, with the ability to raise $50 million, you want to make sure that there's a mechanism in place to, kind of shut them down or at least uh, stop the bleeding if you see everybody in the parking lot with Lamborghinis and Ferraris, right? That's not what a prudent startup would do. I just saw an article about Jeff Bezos' divorce, and they referenced a picture to him uh, on his door desk. And for people that don't know the story, Amazon would issue you doors as desk to kind of not only keep you humble but keep costs down. That's kind of where you need to keep your – uh, mentality if you're in this space and you're thinking of doing an STO. It is not a, and I think crypto winners has scared most of these people away, but even if you're starting to see the light of, of spring and summer, these are not uh, end-all be-alls. You take this investor money, whether it's through a utility, whether it's through security, you know, all those kind of new and nifty ways we have of avoiding hopefully getting a Wells notice. Yeah, so a, a Wells notice is basically uh, the most terrifying thing you can receive in the mail. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, and it basically says, you know, hey, this is the SEC. We've become aware of, you know, this offering or, or, or what you're doing, and we want you to kind of explain it to us. We believe that you're either violating, and sometimes they'll even tell you, we think that you're violating these sections of the law, or they'll kind of frame it in the we're trying to see maybe possibly if you've done anything wrong or if you could explain this a little bit better and that's why promoters uh you know going back to the howie test really matter because if you have Mm. 
let's say you're a, a quote unquote investor, right? You may be accredited, you may not be. And then you're touting on social media how this company's got a deal with Microsoft. Azure. Yeah. So they claim they have a deal with Azure or, or Microsoft because they have a one of those uh, startup deals with Azure where, you know, Microsoft gives them free uh, web services for a year or something. Or maybe it's down to six months. Anyway, you can't go tout that kind of stuff as, as a, an investor, like I said, quote unquote investor, because then you're becoming a participant. You're actively kind of pumping and, and possibly market manipulating the stock even though the stock's not publicly traded yet, especially if there's a there's an intention that it will be publicly traded and all these other kind of things. And so even submissions like that, if you have an active Telegram channel um, or, or Twitter army at this point that are telling you, you know, oh, we've got to deal with Microsoft, we've got to deal with, you know, such and such or Walmart or I can't remember everybody who's Every big name under the sun, somebody's claimed they've had a deal with or a partnership with or in talks with or any of this kind of stuff. And all of that stuff can be actionable depending on the degree, right? And so it's right. very scary as a, as a company, especially a company trying to raise money to receive one of these because it may not necessarily be your fault. If you've basically given your investors and your community this kind of – we are absolutely untouchable. There's nothing like this new AI 3D printing model that also makes its own robots. You know, that kind of stuff um, needs to kind of be backed up in an actual factual analysis. And if it's not, if you're just, you know, truly uh, providing false information to the market in the hopes of either overselling what you're trying to sell or, you know, your investment opportunities – those are things that are, are fraudulent, and, and they will get you and everybody else who kind of participated in the market. And the best example right now is the Fire Festival. And so everybody's probably seen those two little documentaries. I think one's on Hulu and Netflix. Um, but if you haven't, it's yeah. a really great uh, explanation of how uh, to get yourself in trouble with the SEC and the FBI and the DOJ. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening now, and that's and, and not from the, the regulatory standpoint um, necessarily because – the most regulators understand that uh, people that promote these kind of things are generally not quote unquote bad people or they don't have a market interest in it. But if you do have a market interest in that, meaning that you do have a position with that company or that issuer, then you could be in a lot of trouble. And that's not the case with the fire issue because those promoters, uh, including the celebrities involved, were generally paid large sums up front or, or promised large sums on the end, you know, initial down payments and that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, and some of them fell for it. But Anyway, so to promote those kind of things and have, especially if you have a material awareness that these falsities are absolutely false or they're misleading, can get you in a lot of trouble. And so once you receive that Wells notice, you have to go, oh, my God, what what have we done? What has someone else done? What has someone told us? And then once you also receive that notice, you are basically under federal investigation, which means if you delete any emails, if you clear any caches – if you delete your cookies, if you lose your phone, <laughs> yeah. any kind of thing like that can get you in more trouble. You know, regardless of your political opinions, this recent uh, Mueller investigation has shown that lying to the FBI is a real thing. And just like lying to the SEC is a real thing because that's a federal agency, it will get you in some hot water. And, and nobody wants to be in that position because if you think that raising money for ICOs is tough, imagine trying to raise money to uh, fight your jail term or possibly um, oh, yeah. you know, jail term and civil lawsuit. And, and so those kind of things are just ugh. Isn't the first thing you do, though, when you get a Wells notice, then according to what you're saying – on air isn't isn't the the first thing you do call your lawyer i mean i wouldn't even do anything else the first thing i would do well first of all because i am smart the first thing i would do is call you (laughs) (laughs) and i would go jonathan i need a pair of those depends yes and then i would send you a pair of those depends um for future use. I would say, Jonathan, <laughs> I need a pair of those Depends. And by the way, 
where in the world are you? Because I need to send you this, right? I'm taking a picture and I'm sending you a picture of this Wells notice. I mean, isn't it the first thing you do? You don't even, I wouldn't even sit there and mess with my computer because everyone knows that there is no such thing as the death of information anyway. I mean, anybody can piece together anything. If you have a computer, unless you literally go and throw it in a body of water or down a volcano or something like that, unless you physically really get rid of it. And then in that case, it doesn't even work. Uh, you know, especially if you have like Gmail or some kind of cloud-based, I mean, anything like that, there's just no point. So isn't the first thing you do is just call a lawyer and just hand it to them along with your house, your car, <laughs> your, you know, your, uh, you know, your firstborn child. We take I legs mean, and arms. I mean, isn't that down payments? Um... <laughs> I'm, I'm so damn sure. So I mean, no, but isn't that literally the first thing? Because what else can you do? You can't fight something like this on your own. You need legal you need legal firepower. You need them to make the bullets and provide the gun. There's nothing you can do if you get a notice like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, you know, okay. if you receive any type of inquiry from the government, the first thing you do is is get a lawyer. Um, yeah, that's what I would do. That's it, I would it, just call you. That yeah, would be the end of it. I mean, you, you know, it doesn't have to be me. It can be you know, anyone who's competent in in this field, if the IRS calls you, you know, find a, a competent tax attorney, um, especially given their strong arm reach as well uh, around the globe. Um, but absolutely, if you receive a call from a regulator, especially a state, state regulator, they like to call um, and kind of just surprise you. <laughs> and some people answer and, and, you know, have a conversation. And to the, their credit, you know, a lot of my clients that have basically just chatted with a regulator for the first time, either through email or a telephone call, those have gone fairly well, but that's because they're receptive. And, you know, those clients are, are those clients that became client or potential clients that became clients were always on the right side of the law. It's generally the people who are trying to avoid being caught that avoid any type of, of registration regulation or anything uh, dealing with the government. And don't get me wrong, that is one of the things I love about the crypto community, um, but I also really hate it. And so mm. it is nice to believe that, um, you know, you have this anonymity and you have, you want to be free and unrestricted in, in your use of funds and, you know, have the ability to transact with anyone in, in the U.S. Or, or the world that you want using cryptocurrency. But, you know, there's still some really, really bad characters out there. As opposed to, you know, whales, there are sharks. You know, they have the ability to make some very scary financial moves, some really things that would flag FinCEN um, and and bring up kind of terrorist watch lists kind of things. You know, we've seen a, a lot of that recently where people are starting to realize that, you know, it, there's so much KYC and AML coming across um, that they're eventually going to get caught. And so they've got to clean this. They've, think about this. They've got to clean this cryptocurrency the best way they can. Uh, and those type of people are generally not the best type of people. Um, not to say that everybody who's trying to make sure that the crypto money is good and, and not um, devolved of evil, that's fine. But there's a lot of, at least recently I've seen for some reason, maybe it's because of the international travel where they're they're trying to get money out of places or they're trying to move things um, where you're going, look, you've got a number of regulatory hurdles just because most places you travel have, you know, a $10,000 uh, declaration or requirement. And so if you're doing any type of major cross-border transactions, guess what? There's a form you got to file. And that's normally there for a pretty good reason. And not to say that, you know, some people may be living on $10,000 a day to you. Congratulations. But those are generally funds that um, are enough to, to start small wars in most countries. And so you got to be careful. Um, and so, yeah, when it boils down to the correct answer on this one, it is not it depends. It is contact a professional immediately. It, it'll save you money in the long run. Do not wait. Do not wait a day. Do not wait. You can wait an hour. You can go have a smoke break, take a walk, eat lunch, throw up, whatever. But contact someone because – Absolutely. The longer you take, the the longer the detriment and the more costly it is. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that uh, whenever ICOs come uh, come to us, we always the first one of the first questions we 
obviously ask or that we don't even it's not even about asking a question in the very first instance we're looking at the team the team of an ICO we're looking at who they are and and you know before we actually help anyone with raising funds or doing marketing or anything like that and we always say to them who's your legal team and if they say they don't have one to be quite frank with you I don't really want to work with them because it just goes to show that um, they're not getting good advice. And so my next question to you is, Kick received quite a bit of funding. And we already kind of made this statement very quickly, but I just want to talk about this a little, just a second more in depth, where, you know, they received, uh, and I, I, I really wish I added all this up, but we're, I'm just going to round a round up, round down, whatever it is. But I think it was like 40 million bucks in Series C funding, mm-hmm. right? And then um, they got additional funding from Valiant Partners, Millennium, and I, I think some different angels. And they raised 70.5 million before uh, Tencent came in and gave them an, an additional $50 million investment, mm-hmm. okay? Now, uh, those numbers may be a little bit short or a little bit long, but it doesn't matter. They had a load of money prior to doing an ICO. I mean, enough money, the kind of money that uh, companies that have been going for years and years would literally kill for. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why do you think, what, what do you think was the psyche and who do you think, you know, can you imagine sitting in, in a boardroom? I mean, obviously we, I don't know the details and I know you don't either, but We've got a lot of money. We have a lot of, about a hundred and, I don't know, between 120, 150 million. It doesn't matter. It's over a hundred million bucks in the bank. Yeah. We're talking about building a platform. What in the world would make somebody, do you think, in a board meeting go, yeah, let's now muddy the waters and let's now put all this other, because it's, once you start taking ICO funding, you really are, you really are allowing maybe that. You know, it's kind of like uh, one of those James Bond movies where you do see the gates slowly open up and, uh, you know, the great white comes in to, to start swimming around the next victim kind of thing. What what would make somebody think, you know, we've just raised a, a really great amount of money through private investment, but that's not enough. We have to go bigger. What do you think is the psyche behind that? I have no idea. Um, and that's because I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm also nowhere near equipped to, to kind of gather what went on in that boardroom. Um, and, and, and by that, I mean, you know, kind of no disrespect to, to the decisions that were made, but it's one of those positions where, um, you know, and, and when you read the, the well submission, it, it kind of makes it clear that they did need the, the trading volume. They did need to have whether the truth about advertisers is correct, they needed to somehow prove that this was a sustainable model. And the only way that they were able to, would be able to kind of do this as a cryptocurrency is if they had people trading it and using it and all of those other kind of fun things. When you have all of that money, um, and it, it may be, you know, a lot or it may be a little, you know, I don't know what their, their financials look like. Uh, Kick has been around for a while. Um, and so, you know, maybe they were hurting in other areas or maybe they felt, felt like they needed to develop, um, you know, look at all the competitors right now with meeting platforms and, and uh, digital interaction platforms, FaceTime, all these other kind of things. Um, and so maybe they were working on something next level and, and they wanted to kind of squirrel that away and, and start developing that out or, or do, you know, kind of larger ecosystem pushes like this entire thing. I don't know. Um, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. But I, I imagine that it had to involve some type of liquidity and, and volume issue where, um, you know, if if we take on the face of their Wells notice, uh, other Wells submission, if we take on the fa- the factual face of that, 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 you know, they were trying to create this ecosystem, they need people to trade within that ecosystem. They need to have, Absolutely. you know, that transaction. And, and so that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Uh, I haven't uh, had anyone dig up, you know, the SAFs and, and all the kind of other things that they used for these initial filings and, and for the accredited investors and stuff. But I imagine that a lot of them had these this token language. Uh, and so they were probably buying and purchasing tokens in the hopes that uh, these tokens would increase, which is why they, why they filed Form D. But then they said, you know, oh, well, if we go out and 
sell it to unaccredited investors and have all these people on board and, and do all these other kind of things, you know, we're able to really kind of make the ecosystem and, and, and formulate a, a framework that, I don't know, I guess made sense at the time. And, and don't get me wrong, this is 2017. So we've learned a massive amount since then. Um, and so it's not fair to necessarily second guess them. It's just, I don't know what their mindset was at that time, um, even given kind of what they were being told or, or what information they had. You also just mentioned SAFs. Uh, so a SAFT, uh, for for anyone out there who doesn't know it, is a simple agreement for future tokens. And some people have likened them to toilet paper. What is your take on the on the SAFT? I mean, the SAFT pretty much, I mean, they've died out anyway, haven't they? Yeah. Especially with everything to do with STOs. So the SAFT really has become the next two-ply. When we look at anyone who is even, I don't even, I don't know of anyone who's using a SAFT right now. Do you? Um, actually, there, there's, st- I still get people who ask about them. Um, someone sent me one the other day as an investor, and I got terrified. I, I can't. Be- <laughs> well, do you want to explain to the audience why you're uh, so a SAFT or a, <laughs> a stupid agreement for future <laughs> night terrors? Um, he means simple. <laughs> He means simple agreement for future tokens. That's the real name of that, the SAFT. That is the real yes. name of the SAFT. And, and the SAFT is, was a really... I like yours um, better. Well, and, and don't get me wrong. After, you know, some people really started drilling down on this stuff, um, amongst especially the, the securities attorney community, we started going, this is really dangerous. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. you know, especially when they were used for non-accredited people, because, you know, that's what... Uh-huh. The SEC is supposed to uh, protect is, is the people who don't know any better. Um, whether they do that yes. or not is a whole other discussion. But that being said, uh, the SAFT is a is a dead and dying vehicle. Um, if it's not dead already, it should be. Um, you know, the proper use right now is a sub agreement, um, or, or maybe even a safe if it's a, an accredited investor. But you know, those kind of mechanisms are not something. And I, I run into this all the time where people are like, oh, I found one on such and such website and I just, you know, replaced all of their information with mine. That is really dangerous. <laughs> and so, you know, don't do that. Let a professional do that. Generally, like I said, a, a securities attorney who knows this stuff, because whether you know this or not, those those documents have meaning and they have so much meaning that if one clause is off, if one um, for example, if there's a, a severability clause saying that you know everything in this contract is basically um, you know devoid of any information and knowledge and, and everything goes to hell, these are kind of the the severable or survivable um, clauses. If someone forgets to update <laughs> the damn severability section, right, and they put you know uh, clause nine point one and they meant nine point four, that could have dramatic issues, and so. Having that kind of contract, um, having these types of agreements looked over by professionals is really important because, once again, it goes to the entire professionalism of what you're doing. If you're raising millions of dollars, <laughs> you need to take this seriously. You need to you need to be professional. You need to act in a way in which you would imagine kind of Jeff Bezos doing it. And whether you like him or not, the man is, is very successful. And, and so he takes that kind of pragmatic approach of, you know, we've got to be um, lean in our methods, but we also have to be tenacious in our in our uh, you know legal uh, side of things. And, and if you look at Amazon, Amazon is very robust legally. Uh, their legal team is the NFL equivalent of Super Bowl champions um, when it comes to matters. Of course, um, because they don't really play around. They don't they don't take matters other anything other than seriously. And to their credit, you know, Amazon generally doesn't have a lot of issues, uh, whether it's with securities filings or any other types of issues, because they are such a strong player. And so, absolutely, they're well. You know, this is also because as they've grown, they've, like you said, they've created this NFL team, uh, which has been phenomenal in making sure that they've been uh, properly legally represented throughout their growth. But the funny thing is, is that going back to what Ted Livingston wrote. He uh, he also wrote that according to themselves, according to Kick, that Kick's ICO amounted. Okay, so the next thing I want to address is the fact that uh, Ted Livingston, which is who's the CEO of Kick, uh, 
said that the SEC contends that Kix ICO amounted to offers or sales of investment contracts and that the company or Kick the the company itself believed that Kin did not fit the recognized definition of an investment contract. And then they quoted the Supreme Court's definition as a contract transaction or scheme whereby a person invests his or her, her money in a common enterprise and is led to expect profit solely from the efforts of the promoter or the third party. Now, we kind of already touched upon this as well, in that people were obviously expecting to have some kind of profits from these efforts. But I guess what Livingston is saying is that they weren't saying this, that this was going to be the case, that they're now trying to say that people who were buying the kin tokens were not expecting to be making profits or any kind of uh, multiplier on their initial investment. I, well, I, I understand the argument and I understand, you know, and their well submission, what they're doing and, and some of the medium posts are just poking the bear, but um, it, it... But wait, let me go okay. one further. They're even kick are even kick are even arguing that kin holders have not invested in a common enterprise because holders have no claims, contractual or otherwise, which is by the way in brackets, to assets or any future profits in the kick or kin foundation, which is a nonprofit, as we already also covered, governance body that manages the ecosystem around kin. And then he goes on further to say there are dozens of projects at a similar point within the SEC. We all believe that this industry needs regulation, but, but we believe this is not the way to get it. It's it's an it's just um, again. I'm just making sure that we. I'm kind of covering this whole response to the Wells notice because just because it. And this is just my take on it. This is obviously not your take, which is more of a legal perspective. But when I read this, it's like saying, well. My friends have jumped off the top of the building. Why couldn't we? Why can't we? Why can't we also not wear a parachute while we're jumping? Um, it's it's kind of so you know almost. I mean, all it's all he's doing there, and and you know, I I believe it or not, I love my crypto community. I love all good projects. All good projects definitely have a place. But here he's just throwing the other projects under the bus with him. I mean, that's all he's doing. Um, I don't get any of these responses. And I and I almost feel like when I read this that this was not a legally – this was not a response written by someone who went to law mm-hmm. school. And I would have expected a response to this Wells notice, especially given the description you gave it, to have been written – in the most legalese form and with real concrete examples of like, w- according to this versus this, you know, uh, they said this and, and according to 3.2 section 5.5 of subsection <laughs> C, you know, I mean, stuff like this, I would have expected not. Um, there are dozens of projects doing this. Why can't we? You know, I, I, I'm not ex- expecting this kind of a response and one to be posted I mean, and this is a social media platform, remind you. So don't forget what these guys are supposed to be building. So knowing that people who are also in the community, like myself, would be reading these responses, I'm surprised at the level of of expertise that went to kind of defending this. If not, if not doing some kind of crisis PR management and just going hey, folks, this is happening right now. We're just going to pause and reflect. Let our legal team look at all of this. We won't be posting anything about this because this is a serious matter. And we have to address this very seriously and professionally. We have a, we have an ace legal team behind us, and we will we will let you know it's happening in due course. We want to keep you informed. All that kind of positioning. But instead, I, I, I'm reading this, and it, and it just saddens me. Can you make me happy again, Jonathan? Um... <laughs> <laughs> No, um, the, I love a man who speaks the truth. Well, here's the thing: is when you have a situation like this, um, it is generally best to keep your mouth shut. When you're indicted, or God forbid, you're arrested, even 
you know, the first thing your attorney says is plead the fifth and, and you have no comment if, if there's press around. That's the exact opposite approach they're taking is because they're hoping that the, the community, and, and it may, don't get me wrong, and it may, rally around them and, and say, no, this is, you know, we want to fight, we want to know, we want to have this resolution, we want to, you know, be part of this giant win and, and take down the SEC who's looked at as the bad guy and all these kind of, I don't want to say contrarian notions, but, you know, things that are just outside of of one's proper mind for for kind of rules and regulation right now for everything the sec does that is bad or considered negative there's a thousand other things that are really good and really helpful um mm. and yeah, and so i don't like this approach it is not if, if it was my client i would not have taken this but maybe i would not have taken this approach i don't know what uh if at all cooley or, or any of the other, other lawyers have signed off on on these kind of things, um, you know, like I said, they are taking that we are the community. This is for the people kind of mentality, and and that's their rallying cry. But I don't know if that works. I don't know from a, a legal perspective if saying that you're a currency um, gets you there, especially given the, the weird facts they have here. Um, if it was something so decentralized, kind of like the Dow, but not like the Dow. There's that's a whole other kind of podcast, but. If you did something where you had the ability to truly be decentralized and, and not governed by you know any one body, and it was kind of formally regulated to get in, meaning that everybody had to pass strict KYC AML to get in, which is another problem here because people did pass KYC yeah. and AML, which kind of shows that you're security. But then they also have this NBP element, which also lends to uh, most securities attorneys' beliefs right now that if you have a, an MVP – or, or at least probably a beta, you you can basically raise under a SaaS or a subscription model, uh, saying, "Hey, we're building this platform. You know, if you buy a hundred John tokens now, they'll basically be worth two hundred John tokens later. Um, you won't be able to trade them on an exchange or any of that kind of stuff because it would make us a commodity. But all these other kind of weird things that happen with open source uh, code and, and <laughs> a public blockchain is." There's going to be situations where people are like, eh, there's this third party that has everything open source, and this is way too technical. So if I get any of this wrong, I apologize. But someone in theory, you could make a platform, and if your tokens are able to be transacted off of that platform, they could steal that utility and and make it a commodity. And we don't know what happens when that happens. (laughs) So if I all of a sudden discover Mm -hmm. some new magical widget, right? Lawyers love widgets. And then people start trading widgets for everything, trading widgets for gas, trading widgets for groceries. You know, everybody loves widgets. All of a sudden, the CFTC goes, wait a second. (laughs) This is, is this a commodity? Because it has a utility, but it also has this currency function. And and so they get involved. And then we haven't even mentioned the Federal Reserve, which is a whole other issue that nobody's really touched on yet because those are the, the folks that are issuing currency. <laughs> a little, the, the greenbacks are real. Uh, and whether you believe them, you know, they're backed by anything, that's a whole other issue. But they actually transact and actually buy things. And so um, there's, a, there's just a plethora of issues here. And the problem with uh, Kick and the Kin Foundation is it is an old ICO. It has a lot of these kind of anamorphic, weird, <laughs> weird, um, you know, different pieces of different things. It's It's got a form D that makes it look like a security. It's got this MVP slash beta model that already existed with the, the kick uh, coin that made it a utility. Um, you know, they had this exchange part that would allow uh, the ecosystem to grow that would make it a commodity. I mean, so there's just this giant plethora of what the hell is this thing? And so it's kind of a, a good idea to uh, you know, sit down with the regulators and, and figure it out. But is it worth it to say, oh, no, we're going to fight you tooth and nail? I'm not sure about that. That is above my pay grade, and, and I am not their lawyer. So um, <laughs> uh, I, I will bow to the, the deference that uh, Cooley and their people have for the information they have, the internal information. Um, but it is a, a very scary approach to take that. Um, in any situation so well i'm i'm in agreement with you i just i really do for everyone involved in this case i mean there's a number of things obviously we both wish them luck and they and they will need it 
and it's a serious thing, a lawsuit, you know, and I don't wish a lawsuit on anybody. It's very stressful and, you know, obviously a lot of money and time. It does actually impact on productivity and innovation because your mind is, you know, a little bit elsewhere. And I really don't wish that, uh, obviously, on anyone. And I really do wish them the best of luck. Obviously, whatever, if something, if there is a lawsuit that comes out of this, um, it will have a huge impact on the forward the forward legislation of everything to do with cryptocurrency it's going to be massive it will be massive um and i know there's some legislation in various forms all over the country um this new stuff in front of congress is a good step in the right direction is the nice way to frame it uh, you know it, it's not it's not going to happen. Uh, there's not, there's not a snowball's right. chance in hell, but it, it's a, it's nice to have these things talked about on Cop- Capitol Hill because, you know, these are the same group of people that uh, were flabbergasted to understand how Facebook worked. So for them to go from Facebook to cryptocurrency or blockchain is just <laughs> monumental leaps in, in technical understanding and, and even just kind of general um, societal understanding. And so, you know, I applaud those efforts. I really do. I, I cannot stress that enough. It's just, it's too early. It, there's not enough information. And when there's not enough information by uh, governing bodies, which is different than regulatory bodies, governing bodies make mistakes. Uh, the New York Bitcoin license is the best example of that, especially in this community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yep. if anything comes of any type of regulation or governance, it's one of those matters where <laughs> lawyer the F up. It is, it is not something you battle by yourself. It is not something you decide, oh, I, I've seen enough, I don't know, law and order, or <laughs> I don't know what everybody watches nowadays that's got any lawyers in it. There used to be a lot more. But it's not something that you, you, you challenge. It's not something that you try to win on your own. It's not something you go to Medium and post about how you're going to take down the man kind of thing. You know, If you go to Medium, you say, hey, we're really trying to work with these people and figure it out. We've invited the CFTC, the FCC, and, and hell, we even sent a letter to the, the uh, Federal Reserve to see if we can you know, chat it out with them to see what a, an actual currency would look like. All these kind of things are, are mechanisms in which kind of keep you safer. And the first and foremost one is, like you said, you know, when you're looking and evaluating a team, is especially in this area, have you talked to an attorney? You're doing regulated things. You're doing complicated multi-million dollar transactions. You need to have counsel. And like I said, whether it's me or anyone else, there's plenty of I got a long list of damn good securities attorneys if you need one. Um, And so, you know, regardless of where you are in the world or what you're doing, um, you know, you need to have counsel. This is not something where you learn to swim on your own and and you're able to go, you know, chart the, the uncharted waters of the ocean. This is very dangerous and you need help. Well, you know, podcasts like these, especially it doesn't matter if you're an investor or an ICO, there's always some kind of take home message or some kind of lesson which can be uh, extracted from this podcast or all these Absolutely. podcasts. And, and that lesson is, is never, never do anything uh, without making sure you're completely informed and almost doing a worst case scenario check for every step that you take. And if you always think about it from that perspective, it's just like, um, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, never invest more money than you can afford to Mm -hmm. lose kind of idea. Um, If you ever are putting together a strategy for your own company and you can always think of the worst case scenario, then you're always going to be 20 Mm -hmm. feet ahead. So what I will say is this, this has been a very... Another amazing podcast with you, Jonathan. Speaking to you is not only for me fun, but always very, very educational and entertaining at the same time. I will be shipping you a box of <laughs> pens, and that is going to happen. Rido, our program director, has just asked me to also clarify something for our beginner listeners. We talked about something called an MVP, which is a minimum viable product. And now Jonathan is going to give a definition of what the MVP is. Uh, that's a great question. So an uh, MVP is a minimum viable product, meaning it has the least amount of functionality to perform the um, 
the basic underlying function in which it was was designed. If that sounds convoluted, it's because it is. So if I was designing a, a car, <laughs> I would not include the windows, um, you know, the seats even. I would just basically have an engine and some wheels. Uh, think early kind of 19 or 1890s kind of automobile driving around. That's kind of an MVP as opposed to an alpha stage or you know, beta stage is probably like a T model, but um, an alpha stage is something where it's just super advanced. It's, it, it works. Everything is, is functional and it's ready for everyone else. Um, whereas an MVP is only ready for a select view to see, kind of shows you the basic underlying functionality of what it looks like, um, a little bit past wireframing, which is kind of just drawing it out, uh, whether it's in a computer or uh, an actual, um, you know, kind of basic wires um, I've seen for mechanical engineering. Um, and so, you know, those kind of levels uh, are really important, especially when it comes to uh, utility tokens, because you need somewhere between an MVP and a, a utility, or excuse me, an MVP and a beta uh, for your utility. Um, and if you have that, you, you've got to make sure that it fits that kind of definition, that legal definition, which is still undefined, which is why I can't spit out, you know, a perfect definition uh, at this time. But it's it's something that needs to be kind of aware of. But goes back to, you know, you listen to these podcasts, you understand, you know, the basics and you understand uh, kind of some of the terminology. And then you go seek the professionals who can build you the wireframes or build you the MVPs or the developers who can develop out your blockchain products. Uh, and definitely your legal counsel and, and consultants who can help you uh, navigate the, the regulatory hurdles and, and, and governance issues. Beautiful. You see, there's no better way than have something like this concretely defined so that you can go forward and conquer. Again, thank you, Jonathan, for being always just so amazing and just having a great time with us here at Crypto and Blockchain Talk. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this week's podcast. And don't forget to tell your friends and family that they can download us on SoundCloud, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and CastBox. Again, we would love to have suggestions and ideas from you. So if there's something that you want us to explore or delve into, please email us at education at SavvyDigital.com. That's education at Savvy, S-A-V-I-I, digital.com. Again, thank you for joining us this week, and I hope you can join us again next week. Have a great day. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the CryptoCast podcast. Stay tuned in for more episodes.